let's open up this morning to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to begin the reading in chapter, uh, in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, he that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. One of the happiest days of my life was my wedding day, about 19 years ago. And I knew. Uh, several things, of course, on this day, but among those, two in particular things I knew that day. One was that my life was never going to be the same after that. That from there forward, I would have the joy, the responsibility, the privilege, and everything that came with it of from thenceforth living my life with my wife as one that we would uh, live together, that we would go through life together, that we would face the sorrows, the challenges, the joys, the difficulties, and everything that life would bring, we would face them together. The other thing I knew is that I would do anything for her, that if necessary, I would lay down my life and I would die for her and uh, do anything I could or needed to for my wife. Well, here we have a passage that's about Christ and his bride. Now, this is a, a passage about marriage, and as a little bit of a disclaimer, I realize that with a passage like this, there might be sometimes in, in some of us a tendency to tune it out for one reason or another or think maybe this isn't relevant to us today. For example, if you're not married, maybe you're hearing this passage and you're thinking, well, this is about husbands and wives. There's nothing for me by way of instruction here. Um, maybe if you are married, but you're in a bad marriage or a difficult marriage, you think, I don't, I don't know how to apply this to my life. Or maybe you're in a great marriage and you think, I don't need any advice. Things are going great. I don't need any 
uh, instruction about how to interact with my wife or with my husband. Um, But let me tell you that this message is for all of us, no matter what point we are in life. Because uh, each of us might have different ways in which we will apply the practical day-to-day instructions of this passage. But for all of us, it's relevant because it's teaching us about Christ. It's teaching us something about God, revealing something about our relationship with God, as so many things in in life are. So the way I want to start is I want to start by considering something very, very fundamental, human nature. And this is very relevant to this. But when we see how God created man, mankind, God created us in his image. And everything that God made and the relationships we had and the, have and the nature in which we are created is designed to teach us something about God and our relationship to God. And if we can learn those lessons, then they can draw us closer to God and, and a closer understanding of him. God created, it says in the very beginning, and this is not uh, just me going off on a tangent because I like talking about Genesis. This passage, in fact, refers back to Genesis. Uh, You may or may not have caught it as I was reading because Paul doesn't say, and as Genesis such and such says, but he quotes from the book of Genesis in his description of this. And he goes on to say that this speaks about Christ in the church. In fact, he says something that ought to catch our attention. He says, this is a great mystery. And when Paul talks about mystery, he's talking about something that was hidden from our understanding for a long time. But now God is revealing it to us. God is making something known to us. God is revealing something about his eternal plan for humanity and for our relationship to him. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, right after quoting from the book of Genesis. So uh, we go back to Genesis. We see it says that God said, let us make man in our image. And it goes on to say that God created man in the image and likeness of God. And then it says that he created uh, them in his likeness, male and female, created he them. And so we see that there is some sense in which we, as humankind, are created in the image of God. And that is not a a side thing about human nature. This is the fundamental baseline truth about who we are and what we are. It is from where the value and dignity of human life comes and that we are created in the image of God. So let us consider for a moment what that means. What is an image? An image is a picture. It's a representation. Uh, One illustration I really love is from the book of Samuel just because it's so vivid for me. Uh, In the book of Samuel, and in Israel's interaction with the Philistines, the Philistines got possession of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments in it. It was a sacred, holy object that God had told them how to make, and it was 
in the Holy of Holies, in the center of Israel's worship of God in the, in the tabernacle. But they carried it out into battle with them. God had not told them to do this. They carried it out into battle. They're defeated in battle, and the Philistines carry it away. And the Philistines had five major cities, and they uh, brought it into the first city, and God afflicted them with a plague in that city. And they began to be afflicted with a plague in their bodies and with mice that came and, and uh, ate up their crops. And so they were suffering, they were uh, hungry, and they were dying. And then, so they sent the ark to one of their other cities. And then God did the same thing there. He, he plagued them with the mice in particular and with tumors in their bodies. And so they sent it on to another city. God does it again and so on. Well, uh, at the end of this ordeal, they finally uh, are realizing that they need to try to send this back to Israel, get rid of this ark and make an appeasement, make an atonement sacrifice Make a gift to try to appease the God of Israel so that he will relax his hand from afflicting them. So what they do is it says they make their, their priests instruct them to make an image of the mice and an image of the tumors that were afflicting them. And so they, they uh, make mice out of gold and they provide this back as a gift back to, uh, to the God of Israel to try to appease God's wrath. And so they make an image. So picture that in your mind, a golden, five golden mice representing the five cities of the Philistines, representing the thing that afflicted them. And that is an example of an image. It's a representation designed in its uh, qualities to represent the thing that it is an image of. Well, that is, that's, that is the nature of, of humanity and and our purpose that we are put here for in the creation is we are designed to be a representation of God. Let us make man in our image. And he God created man in his image, male and female created he them. So we're representative of God. It's our it's our job. He created the animals, he created all the various plants and elements of earth. And he put us here to be his representatives to the rest of creation here in earth. And that is also the basis of human dignity. And that applies to every single one of us, no matter where you're from, no matter uh, if you're the strongest, most powerful, wealthiest, most uh, influential, most revered person in the world, or you're the weakest, frailest, most unknown person, all of us have value and dignity because we are made in the image of God. And uh, though sin's, interest in, sin's entrance into the world impacted our ability to faithfully live out this job and this calling, it did not take away from humankind the image of God in us. Uh, one of the ways we know this is that after the violence that filled the earth in the time of the flood and after God sends the flood into the earth, he, uh, he says to Noah, he says, if, if man sheds man's life, then his life shall be shed because man is made in the image of God. 
So the reason that God instituted the uh, penalty for taking human life was because of the dignity of human life based on the fact that we are made in the image of God. Which means that our greatest purpose, our calling here, is the glorious purpose of representing God in the earth. Of being his representatives. And we, because of the entrance of sin, we fail to live up to that. We fall short of that great calling. We are unable to fulfill that calling in the earth because of the entrance of sin. And that is perhaps why it says in the book of Romans... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, when we think of sin, we often think of coming short of the holiness of God or the righteousness of God. And that is absolutely true. All have sinned, we we could say, and come short of the righteousness of God. All have sinned and come short of the holiness of God. But it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because our purpose for which we are created is a glorious purpose that is to be God's representatives in the earth. But we've fallen short of that. And so that calls out, that cries out for a remedy. It cries out for a fix because God does not fail in his plans. God does not fail in his purposes. So God is going to fix this. God is going to remedy this. But because of sin, we fall short of being the full uh, image of God. Now consider another aspect of this. This is, we are the image of God on a personal and individual level. Each one of us, each one of us is made in the image of God. The qualities that we have, uh, our intelligence, our creativity, our ability to have will and mind and make choices and and create and to build things and to enter into relationships. And all these things reflect qualities about God. Individually, we are made in the image of God. But it doesn't just say as individuals. It says we as humankind are made in the image of God. In particular, part of that image is in the male and the female, which creates the capacity for human relationships And so we see that in those human relationships, each of them teaches us things about our relationship to God and the nature of God. It says, for example, that God is love. God is love, that love is not just something that God does after he created humankind, but Love is an essential attribute of God's eternal being and character. And we can think about how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have from all eternity existed in a never uh, ending with no beginning state of mutual love and fellowship from all eternity. And so love is not something that uh, God uh, acquired later after he created angels or after he created people. But love is an essential attribute of God's character. Well, when God created the man, the first man, Adam, and uh, he, he made him out of the dust of the earth and formed him and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, He later said something indicating that his work of creating man was not done. He said, it is not good that man 
should be alone. I will create a helper, meet, a help meet for him. It, it, to say, I will create a helper suitable to him. That, that is someone that is in his likeness, someone that is like him, that will be an appropriate fit for him. And so he created the woman. And, and this is where this verse comes from. When God creates Eve, places her in the garden with Adam, and he creates in that, he creates the woman. And in creating woman, uh, you know, we often think of that statement, it is not good for man to be alone, as a statement that is about marriage, which it is. First and foremost, in the immediate context, it's about marriage, but it's about more than that. Because by God creating the man and the woman and the ability of procreation, God has created the capacity for all human relationships. Every friendship, every parent and child relationship, every community, every church community, every tribe, every country, every nation, every uh, situation we're in with human relationships flows from that creation of God to create a helper suitable for the man, to create a help meet for him. God knew that it was not good for the man to be alone. And so he created us with the capacity and the ability for human relationships. And they teach us something about God. In fact, they were created for the purpose of teaching us something about God. When we pray to God, we're taught to pray our father who art in heaven. We have human fathers. We have fathers after the flesh, but we are taught that we have a heavenly father. And in fact, this is not just that uh, when Jesus calls God our father, that he's making a metaphor from the human relationship so that we would understand something about God. It in fact works the other way. God created those human relationships to teach us something about him. And so it is with, with marriage. And when we come to, to this, we see that a great mystery is being revealed about the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. Quotes from Genesis, he says, For this cause, for, this is verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5, but it comes from the book of Genesis, Ephesians 5, 31. And it comes from the book of Genesis. Way back in chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, how did God, how did God create the woman? Well, it says that God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he took out from his side, he took out a rib and from the rib he formed the woman. The woman was made like Adam, suitable for him. Uh, God had created already by this point, he created the angels. And the angels are in a sense of their order of creation, they are uh, described as being higher than humanity. Not in all respects, but when, it when God creates man, he says he made him a little lower than the angels. 
The angels have more majesty, more glory than humankind. Well, God had also created the animals. God had created uh, all the different types of animals, some of them uh, quite majestic, quite glorious, some of them uh, crawling, little crawling things along the ground. But God intended to create for Adam not someone of a higher order and status, not someone of a lower order and status, but someone like him, someone suitable just for him. And, and so he did. But he put Adam into a deep sleep and he took the rib out. And maybe when you hear that language, you think uh, God is just very uh, neatly pulling out a nice clean bone from Adam's side and from that he's forming. But this is not the picture that you should get. You should picture something that is uh, quite destructive. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is not just a nice, neat, little, clean bone. This is Adam's side that is being taken out. Adam needed to be in a, not just a sleep, a deep sleep. This is like a divine surgery that's taking place. In other words, what's being given to us is a picture that in order for the bride to be created for Adam, Adam had to at least symbolically go down into the depths of death and his side needed to be pierced and his flesh and his bones taken out. And, and that was what was necessary for the creation of his bride. And so we were given there also an image and a picture of the church that would come from the life of Christ, that would come from his side being pierced and would come from his death. And his suffering. So with that, uh, let us come back. Let's come back to this passage here. And we'll consider for a few minutes here this moment what uh, we are being told here in this passage. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Now, the Bible teaches us something about human relationships. In particular, here, we're talking about the marriage relationship. The Bible teaches us God's design for how a marriage relationship is constructed, that it is one uh, described as, as headship. And the husband is described as the head of the wife. Uh, marriage is created to be the union of one man and one woman, each created like one another, but also different from one another. And both the likeness and the differences are part of God's design that there might be a complementary relationship between the two that reflects in it the glory of God and is for the good of the husband, the good of the wife, the good of the children, the good of society as a whole. And uh, some of these things, some of these things run contrary to what the world teaches us today or what the world tries to teach about marriage and about human relationships. But you can safely, I believe, 
safely ignore most of what the world says about these kind of things because we have what God says about them. And what God says about them is for our good and for his glory, for the good of the relationship itself and for the good of our communities and one another. She says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, he's already, as he's giving this instruction, he's already dove into showing how the human marriage relationship is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. And so we are learning something about Christ and his church, both as we are living out marriage and as we are witnessing marriage. This means, for example, it means that if you are married, if you are a husband, or if you are a wife, the way that you uh, live with your spouse, the way that you live out these things, is a constant preaching of a message about the gospel and about the relationship of Christ and the church. And so that means that you have an opportunity in that relationship to declare something about Christ and the church. If you are a wife, the way that you follow your husband's lead, the way that you submit yourself to your husband, the, uh, the kindness and the care and the love that you show to your husband, you are in all those things. You are speaking something and representing something about how the church does and ought to respond to her Lord and husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a husband, the way that you love your wife, the way that you sacrifice yourself, the way that you lay down your own life and labor to help her, to provide for her, the way that you seek to lead her wisely and care for her and cherish her, you are representing something about Christ's relationship to the church. We know uh, that we fall short of living up to this. We fall short of doing this faithfully, sometimes woefully so. And in doing so, we uh, send a bad message about the gospel. We represent the gospel in a wrong way, but we can be reminded and encouraged by the fact that we have an opportunity in that relationship to speak forth by our actions and our words about Christ and his church. And that is the model for us in that. The husband, uh, verse 24, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, what is set forth here is really the, the highest, most intense possible standard that could be presented before us. Because what did we are we are called to reflect on what the Lord Jesus Christ did for his bride, what he was willing to do, the lengths to which he was willing to go. Was he willing to suffer discomfort for her? Yes. Uh, he suffered. Uh, he suffered hunger. He suffered uh, physical pain. 
He suffered the sorrows of this life. He suffered being abandoned by friends. He suffered being uh, criticized and attacked by his enemies. He suffered then on the cross, suffered the physical pain. He suffered bleeding, and he even gave himself over to death itself. Why did he do this? What was he, why would he be willing to do that? He would be willing to do it. He was willing to do it because of the magnitude of the love that he had for his bride and his willingness to do anything, to do whatever it would take in order to ensure that he would be able to dwell with her forever. And that was what was necessary. That, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now when we look at, when we look at this example, we see that... Uh, The example is set up before us of Christ and his church. Not in every particular of what Christ did are we going to be able to apply that directly to the human marriage relationship. Um, Not uh, the husband is not going to necessarily have to. He's not going to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his wife. But we are set This is set up for us as a model. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. What is the the key piece of information or knowledge that's here? It's that they too are one flesh. When the husband is loving towards his wife, he is loving towards someone who has been united to him as one together. And so he says... For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Now, generally, uh, unless somebody is, is really you know, suffering from some kind of mental distress or, or serious issues, people generally know how to take care of themselves. You know how to take care of your, yourself, your own needs. I mean, think about it. If you're a grown adult and you're hungry... Uh, you know how to find some food. You know how to, to satisfy that hunger. If, you're, if your uh, back is hurting you and you're tired of standing up, you're going to find a place and you're going to try to sit down. You're going to, you're going to take care of yourself to some degree. In fact, we're pretty good at taking care of ourselves and pretty good of recognizing our own needs and trying to meet them. But what's Uh, difficult for us a lot of times is thinking about the needs of the others around us. But we are reminded here of how the wife and the husband are one flesh and so the husband ought to love his wife as his own body. For we, it goes on, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth it, cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And here we begin to have this reference back to Genesis, his flesh and his bones. This is what Adam said when Eve was created. 
said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's amazed. Something incredible has just taken place. God has created a a companion for him, a bride for him, and she is from him and she is like him. And he's amazed by it, that the two, one made from the other, are now united together and they are one, two and one at the same time. And this great mystery tells us something about Christ and his church, something that has been being declared to us in all different ways all throughout this letter to the Ephesians as we are taught in all the different facets of Christ's union with his people that we are one with him. One of the earlier times that mystery was mentioned was the mystery about the people of God being one with each other. That at that time, the Jews and the Gentiles, who were separate people, who were separated in very significant ways by the design of God and God calling out the nation of Israel and making them a special people, that God was in that time now doing something incredible in that he was breaking down the wall of division between them and uniting them together in one body by his flesh that the sacrifice the death of Christ had made the way possible for the dividing wall between them to be taken down and all of God's people to be united together in the church as one body, as one people of God. And that this was in the working out of the eternal purpose of God that is uh, stated very early in Ephesians in verse 10 in this way of chapter 1. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. That God's purpose from all uh, from before the foundation of the world, that was in the fullness of times, God might unite all of his people together. He might unite all things together in one in Jesus Christ And that this was accomplished by the purpose of God, who it says works all things after the counsel of his own will. So the division between the Jews and the Gentiles is taken down. They are united together in one body, in one people. And that church, that church, that bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is united to him so that we are members of him. We are one with Christ. We are in him. The life that we have is in him. We are described as his body. Remember back in chapter four, that we are members of Christ. We are members of his body, that we are here to in this world to live out the life of Christ in the world by the power of his spirit dwelling in us. Individually, each one of us as members, but then those members united together by that same spirit, the same spirit that called you, that called you out of whatever place you were in before and enlighten your mind to the knowledge of Christ, enlighten your mind to the destitution that you had in your sin and your need for a savior to wash you and make you clean, to wash away your sin and unite you. And that that calling spirit has been at work in every one of God's elect people and united us together in one body and is effectually working in the measure of every part that we might grow up 
into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So here we see, then he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And, and then uh, the, the truth is always, it, it's always practical. It's always coming back to the practical day to day. And so coming back, lest we lose sight of the fact as we have our minds elevate up to think about these glorious eternal truths, lest we lose, lose sight of the practical. He says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she rev- reverence her husband. But let's, let's end on that thought, though, that this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Here is one aspect of that great mystery. The purpose of God is that we as his people might be one with Jesus Christ. This was his prayer for us. This is his desire that we would be one with each other and one with him. That the closeness that we have with him might continually grow from day to day. That we might be in constant fellowship and communion with him such that our desires are formed by his work of his life working in us. That we might be closer and closer to him with every day. And and we are taught by that, this great mystery, that Jesus loves his bride so much, so much. Now, we know that, that human marriages are flawed, sometimes broken. But, even, but if you imagine even the best, the most loving, the most committed, the most uh, epic love story of human marriages that you can think of, it only begins to approach unto the love that Jesus has for his bride. He loves you so much, so much, that he was willing to lay down his life and die, suffer, bleed, and die for you. He loves you so much that he would and has done anything necessary, not just to save you, Not just to to help you out, but so that he could be with you forever. So that he could be with you. Have communion, fellowship, and union with you, with us, with his people for all eternity. It says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him. See, Christ went to the cross and and he went... To suffer and to die, but he didn't do it for no, uh, no goal, no purpose. He did so willingly because he saw at the end of that the great joy of being united forever with his people. In John chapter 14, Jesus is giving some... 
of his closing words to his disciples before he was going to go to his death. And I, I've been told that the language that Jesus uses here in this passage was, at the time, it was a kind of betrothal language. That before a marriage, the husband might say something to his soon-to-be bride along the lines of, I go to prepare a place for you. And then I'll come again to you and receive you unto myself. That he would go and he would make the, the home ready. He would go and, and he would prepare a place that they might go and they, they might uh, both leave the place from where they came and they might go and enter into a new home together. And Jesus uses similar language here as he prepares to leave his disciples. Verse, 14, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 of John. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God... Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And where I am, that where I am there, ye may be also. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you today. We thank you for the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he loves us so much. And in our case, God, we, we had nothing in us, in ourselves, that was to be desired. But we're in fact corrupted by sin, but because of your great kindness and your love for us. You are willing to come, take on flesh, and die for us that we might be united to you. God, we pray that these truths would penetrate our heart and we would know the magnitude of your love and we would desire to draw closer to you as your bride each and every day. God, we thank you that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present her without spot, without wrinkle, but pure, clean, and holy, and that we might dwell together in love with you, God, forever as one. In Jesus we pray. Amen.